Hello, I'm Charles Hubble, your host and narrator for our podcast series, Deceived, the Moo Years. Deceived, the Moo Years, is the true story of one young man's compelling, at times terrifying, former involvement with the martial arts cult, Chung Mu Kwan. The following story you are about to hear is true. It took place between 1980 and 1996. Most of the names have been changed. There are other versions of the story. My name is Russell Johnson, and this one is mine. Deceived, the Mu Years, Episode 12. Chung Mu Kwan, the Cult and the Khan. In the mid-1980s, Pam Zekman, an investigative reporter for CBS affiliate WBBM-TV in Chicago, received a tip about the Chung Mu Kwan martial arts schools and started an investigation. Zekman is known for her aggressive investigative work. She has shared two Pulitzer Prizes for investigative reporting for the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times. One of the tips was about a woman who started taking her son into a local Chung Mu Kwan school for lessons. While waiting for her son during his lessons, she began a friendship with the instructor and enrolled in lessons herself. The friendship was said to have possibly evolved into a relationship. The married woman's family intervened and hired clinical psychologist Dr. Edwin Morse to counsel her. According to Dr. Morse, in the spring of 1988, he began working with the woman, who was involved in Chung Mu Kwan in the Chicago area. During this therapy, it became evident to him that the woman was following behavioral and attitudinal practices contrary to her normal mode of operating before she entered the school. There are a number of factors involved in imposing this new attitude and behavioral regime. First, she was told many things in terms of being able to achieve significant accomplishments relevant to her improved health, attitude, and philosophy on life. Following this, it was very evident that, through practicing many forms, especially on a one-on-one basis, she was subtly orchestrated and choreographed. During this choreographing, she experienced trance-like states and was a passive receiver of continuous suggestions having to do with the goals of the school. Four variables were set into motion almost immediately. They controlled her environment, manipulated her environment, demanded a lifestyle of purity, and utilized subtle confessionals. She found herself talking with her instructor about her personal and marital life, and not knowing why. As she continued, other factors began occurring. A new language was introduced, consisting of the philosophy of this school. The philosophy became more important, and her loyalty to the school was enhanced further and further. The doctrine became more important than the individual. While all this was occurring, she simultaneously made further steps through the school, where she succeeded in taking different levels of courses. However, as each level increased, the financial commitment also increased. This is an extremely important factor. When an individual has to sacrifice more and more for something, their loyalty becomes greater, and their internal perception of what they have committed to becomes more valuable to them. This is the principle of cognitive dissonance. Master Kim understood cognitive dissonance. In the early 1990s, Russell Johnson was put in contact with the woman's husband. During a telephone conversation, he told Russell that his family had been threatened and harassed by the Moo. 
The telephone conversation was almost four years afterwards, and the husband was still angry. I talked to her husband, and he told me that he had hired someone to follow John C. Kim and to take pictures of him. The pictures, along with the note, were sent to Kim saying that he could be gotten to and to leave the man and his family alone. The harassment stopped after that. He expressed to me that he would like nothing better than to see Kim dead. I took him seriously, but at the time I could not comprehend why someone could hate Kim so much that they would want to see him dead, and now I do. I, for one, am happy that he is dead. Chicago TV journalist Pam Zekman wanted to finish the investigative report on the Chung Kwan schools. She needed someone to appear on camera without a disguise to make the story credible and contacted Joe Simhart. Former members were unwilling to go public for fear of retribution by lawsuit or physical beating, or worse. Zekman urged Joe Simhart to ask the former instructors he exit counseled out of the MOO to appear on camera, showing their faces. Only two out of the five instructors agreed, Jake Anderson and Glenn Sanders. They agreed, but only on the condition that Simhart would also go on camera. The fear of reprisal was not unwarranted. I give a lot of credit to Jake and Glenn. They stood up when others would not, but it cost them. By willing to go on TV and show their faces, they saved countless amounts of people from their lives being ruined. After the news reports, they had to go into hiding for several years, and they were fearful for their lives. Wherever you guys are now, I just want to say thanks, and people should remember what you did. According to Zekman, during her investigation, she was threatened by two different regional head instructors. One told her, the school owners will come after you. They're not a gentle group. Another, who was also an attorney for the Moose, said, the school owners are rockheads who act before they think. He said that if she dropped the story, they'll back off. Otherwise, he feared an accident was coming. According to Zekman, they took the threat seriously, and for the first time in her career, CBS would hire security personnel to guard her. The Moo would distribute a flyer wanted poster on Zekman that depicted her as a witch. The Moo had a name for her. According to federal prosecutor Cheryl Bell, Zekman was referred to as the crazy lady. Looking back, Russell Johnson said that he found some irony in the fact that Master Kim would be exposed, taken down by a small Jewish woman. It seemed that karma had found its way to Master Kim. I found it ironic that, with Kim's abusive views and actions towards women, that he would be taken down by women. Assistant Illinois Attorney General Lynn Worley went after him in the consumer fraud case. Federal Prosecutor Cheryl Bell sent him to prison, and Pam Zekman exposed him and took him down. The build-up to the broadcast during Sweeps Month was intense and was promoted weeks in advance. Pam Zekman's five-part expose called The Cult and the Con aired November 2, 1989, during the evening news. As the series was about to begin, there was a momentary loss of power and signal, turning the viewers' televisions to static. Some Moo loyalists would contribute this power outage to Master Kim's supernatural powers, but in fact, it was more sinister than that. According to former instructors, who were loyal to Master Kim at the time, the Moo paid off a CBS technician $10,000 to cut the power at the beginning of the broadcast. The series would open up with now-famed news reporter Bill Curtis. Cults are becoming more difficult to detect because they often mask their identity behind a legitimate business or service. 
Channel 2's investigative team has found such a group, a national chain of martial arts schools, some of which have used mind control techniques to intimidate and exploit believers. They teach a martial art called Chung Mu Kwan. Pam Zachman reports on the cult and the Khan. There are 10 Chung Mu Kwan schools in the Chicago area and a dozen others across the country. They were founded here in the late 1970s by John C. Kim, a former maintenance man who promotes himself as a martial arts master. His followers say he has supernatural powers. Zekman said they talked to dozens of former students and instructors who've been with Chung Mu Kwan over the past 12 years. Most of them asked to disguise their identities. They said they're afraid because the schools thrived on an atmosphere of intimidation and violence. According to Zekman, her investigation found that some of the schools exploited students to take their money and to take over their minds. That's why experts call it a cult. It fits every single definition of a cult which I have studied. Joe Zimhart has deprogrammed several former Chung Mukwan students. And when students say they felt like they were brainwashed? Brainwashed? There is, quote, brainwashing going on in this organization. Mind control? Definitely mind control. Zekman reported that to recruit followers, some Chung Mu Kwan instructors have targeted vulnerable people, those who are lonely, lacking direction or self-esteem. Former instructor Jake Anderson told Zekman, We look for people's weaknesses. We would spend time in groups going over each individual student and determining how to best hit their mind, as it was called. Anderson had been among the same group as Russell Johnson during these meetings in Minnesota. Zekman reported that some instructors have urged students to abandon future plans, like college. A former student in Silhouette told Zekman that college education was discouraged and that the Moo training was a much better form of education. The report would show that it was common practice to encourage students to give up their plans for their future. Zekman said they were pressured to move in with other believers. A former instructor whose image remained in silhouette and voice altered told Zekman that this was done so they have more control over you, so you had no outside influences other than through Chung Mu Kwan. A woman who was married to a Mu student told Zekman they controlled everything he was physically doing, from the time he woke up until the time he went to bed. Zekman reported that some were told that John C. Kim had secret powers. Jake told Zekman it was said that Kim had a lot of healing powers, that he could essentially heal anything. Like Russell Johnson, the belief in Master Kim's healing powers was widespread. The following night, part two of The Cult and the Con aired, titled Violence. It would open with lead anchor Bill Curtis. Since the mass suicide in Jonestown 11 years ago, experts have intensified their efforts to identify cults and warn the public about potential dangers. Last night, the Channel 2 investigative team disclosed that a national chain of martial arts schools is a front for a cult. Tonight, charges of violence and intimidation at some schools of Chung Mu Kwan. Pam Zekman continues her reports on the cult and the Khan. Pam Zekman interviewed a local karate instructor, Gary Cochran, who opened a competing martial arts school. Cochran was invited to a nearby Chung Mu Kwan school. 
There he was greeted by 20 students and their instructor. This person had such power over these people that uh, these people were like uh, robots. Just like in the Bruce Lee movie, Cochran and a friend were surrounded by the students. He says the instructor ordered them to attack. Quick, go destroy them! Kill! In the movie, Bruce Lee wins after fending off dozens of attackers. In real life, the 20 to 1 odds were too much for Cochran. He was beaten by the Chung Mu Kwan students and then threatened by the instructor who's no longer there. And he said, in front of all these people, I promise you that if you open up your school, uh, we will kill you. He threatened to kill you? Yes, he did. Were you scared? I was terrified, uh, numb. According to Zekman, around that time, police in several suburbs received reports of harassment, intimidation, and beatings by Chung Mu Kwan followers at some schools. Other martial arts instructors were worried that the incidents were giving the entire sport a bad name. Zekman interviewed Scott Kiefer of USA Karate. He told Zekman, you know, this is not normal for a martial arts school. This is not the way martial arts schools operate. A former Chung Mu Kwan instructor told Zekman they were trying to put their competitors out of business. The former instructor, in silhouette and voice altered, told Zekman, we were told to hurt them, and we beat them up, put them on the street, and put them in the hospital a couple of different times. Zekman, why? Former instructor, because Chung Mu Kwan is a superior art, and they were garbage, because they knew another style of martial art. According to Zekman, some Chung Mu Kwan schools intimidated their own students and staff. Many of those who talked with Zekman asked for anonymity because they were afraid. A former instructor told Zekman that when he quit, the head of the school, who's no longer there, threatened to have him killed. There's a lot of people listening to every word that the higher belts say, and they'd do anything, even kill somebody, if they were told to kill somebody. You really think that? Sure. Cult experts are not surprised. No, it doesn't surprise me that people would uh, act out every single command that the management in Chung Mu Kwan hands out, especially to the instructors, because that is how they're conditioned. They're conditioned to behave on, on command. During the federal tax case, it was revealed that the Mu had Simhart under surveillance. Part 3 of the news investigative series titled The Khan. So martial arts schools are apparently using illegal tactics to recruit students. Last week, the Channel 2 investigative team reported on mind control techniques used by some of the John C. Kim schools of Chung Mu Kwan. Tonight, Pam Zekman reports on financial exploitation in the cult and the con. Chung Mu Kwan schools say they teach the true martial art. The walls are plastered with pictures of their Korean founder, Master John C. Kim, said to be a ninth-degree black belt. He's on posters demonstrating Chung Mu Kwan, crouching like a tiger, soaring like an eagle, and using his whole body as a weapon to attack. The signs declare he's the champion of all Asia. When Zekman asked a Chung Mu Kwan instructor where the competition was held, his answer was vague and incoherent. He responded, well, in Asia. Exactly, in Asia. More a tournament in Asia more the, the champion of all Asia. To verify that such a competition actually existed, Zekman contacted Korean martial arts master Tae Hee Nam. Considered an expert in Korean martial arts, 
Master Nam was a pioneering South Korean master of Taekwondo and had served as president of the Asia Taekwondo Federation. According to Master Nam, there was no such competition. During an interview with Master Nam, Zekman asked, You could not become champion no. of all Asia no. in the 50s? No. Not possible? Not possible. Yeah. Zekman interviewed several former Chungmu Kwan students. Before their contracts were to be signed, some instructors gave them strenuous workouts or humiliated or hurt them in class. A former instructor from Minnesota says it was deliberate. Zekman interviewed Jake Anderson. Anderson, by the time I would get a student into the office, hopefully he's very intimidated and willing to accept my direction and my word on things. Zekman, and your direction would be? Anderson, my direction would be to get him in the black belt course. Zekman, sign on the dotted line? Anderson, yes. Anderson says he quit because students were being misled into believing Chung Mu Kwan was legitimate. Anderson, the things they're doing are completely contradictory to that. Zekman, what are they doing? Anderson, they're conning people. Within a few weeks after the airing of this interview, Jake Anderson was assaulted by a Mu instructor while leaving a restaurant in Minnesota. Jake Anderson and Glenn Sanders would go into hiding and get an apartment together and for the next few years they would live in paranoia in fear of retaliation by the Moo. Zekman talked to some students who paid the schools as much as $50,000. Their instructors asked them to sell their cars, deplete their savings, and give all their extra money to pay for lessons. Cult expert Joe Simhart The mind control in Chung Mu Kwan has students believing that the quicker they pay it off, the more righteous or more direction they have within the organization the more loyalty they have to Chung Mu Kwan ideas, and therefore, they generally drain their bank accounts quite rapidly. Pam Zekman asked the school's attorney why the schools demand payment in cash. Kim's attorney says Kim collects a fee from the schools, but says the owners are responsible for running them. He says that if the owners are violating any laws, their licenses will be revoked. And when I asked why the schools demand payment in cash, he said that it was none of my business. He asked... Isn't that a matter for the Internal Revenue Service? Zekman would quote his response during the broadcast. His response got the attention of the Internal Revenue Service, which would begin its own investigation. In 1996, the Mu attorney, who was also a regional head instructor, would be sentenced to five years in prison for his role in the tax conspiracy case. Zekman also showed the attorney ID cards for advanced students that say their rank is registered with the Chung Mu Kwan organization, Asian headquarters. He admitted there is no such organization. It doesn't exist. Not that I'm aware of. Is that a, a good idea legally to be giving out these cards if there is no such organization? I will say this, Pam. I, you have brought it to my attention, and I'm going to look into it, and I'm going to review it, and if I feel some changes are necessary, I will make those changes. In the series' final installment, Pam Zekman interviewed the mother of a Chung Mu Kwan instructor who appeared in silhouette. Her son was 17 when he decided to go to a neighborhood Chung Mu Kwan martial arts school to learn how to protect himself. During a tearful interview with Zekman, she said, My son, his entire life, all that he is, all that he will be, appears to be owned by Chung Mu Kwan. Zekman, do you think it's a cult?
Mother. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it's a cult. In the beginning, this mother tried to be open-minded as she watched her son's behavior change radically. But as with all cults, the school drove a wedge between them. There were fights, tears, and then resignation that her son was lost. To warn others, she agreed to tell his story, but asked for anonymity. She told Zekman she feared that if they find us making this conversation, that they may injure our family members, or they may injure our son, who is deeply in their grasp. When her son started, the lessons were inexpensive. He was a devoted student practicing Chung Mu Kwan exercises every day. But as he progressed toward a black belt, the cost of lessons and tests increased dramatically. The mother said at one point, he came into the house and was trying to get a loan for $5,000. And we're, what do you need that for? And he says, for a test. And we said, $5,000 for a test? And he says, that's nothing. Later on, it'll be 15000 She says he was holding down three jobs, turning his paychecks over to the school and getting an allowance from his instructor for living expenses. He moved into an apartment with other Chung Mu Kwan students. One day, his mother caught them going through her jewelry box and stealing food. She told them, If you're that hungry, I'll feed you, but I really don't want you stealing from me. At school ceremonies, she was shocked by the students' demeanor. They all seemed to have a glaze in their eyes. They all seemed automated. It went beyond the respect and discipline associated with martial arts. During the interview, she said, It was like a brainwashing. His whole life became waiting for someone else to dictate to him what to do, when to eat, when to move, when to breathe. Her son once abhorred violence. Now he was obsessed with it. He talked about how they could do certain moves and take a person's arm and pull it out of its socket and swing it at them. She said, you're talking about dismembering people? At one point, her son was seriously injured on the job and couldn't walk. The doctors released him to her care. But after he talked to his Chung Mu Kwan instructor, other students came to her house and took her son away. She said, my son said, I made a mistake. I should not have returned to the home of my parents. In tears, she continued, So my husband and I argued with him, with our son, and with the people taking him out. But there was like a wall we were arguing with. They weren't hearing us. With the passage of time, the injury healed. And for her son, Chung Mu Kwan became a career. He told her he will be making a good living when he becomes an instructor. He said this is the life process for him and he will be able to retire at 35. Her son eventually moved to another state where he lives with other instructors and teaches at a Chung Mu Kwan school. And what do you see down the road for him? I think he's, he's trapped. I think he's stuck. I sort of think he's a prisoner. You feel like you've lost your son to Chung Mu Kwan? Oh, very much so, yes. Almost like he died. The fallout from the news investigation happened almost immediately. On November 7, 1989, Illinois Attorney General Neil F. Hardigan filed a lawsuit against John C. Kim personally and doing business as the John C. Kim School of Chung Mu Kwan. The complaint stated that Kim had violated the state's Physical Fitness Act, which stated health clubs could not charge more than $2,500 per year for services and must give copies of contracts. 
the complaint charged that the Kim schools engaged in consumer fraud. The suit asked that the defendants be permanently banned from engaging in business in the state of Illinois and sought a $50,000 fine. In a TV news interview, Attorney General Neil F. Hartigan stated, Nobody's going to intimidate the Attorney General's office. We know what the law is, and we know how to enforce the law. The Illinois Attorney General's office was entering an unforeseen legal battle with the Kim organization. The Moo would fight defiantly to impede the legal process with a never-ending series of motions, filings, and continuances to stop the progress of the suit by hindrance. To the frustration of Attorney General Hartigan, the case would outlast his term as Attorney General and tie up some of the office's resources over the next five years. Following the news expose, several newspapers did follow-up stories. The mother of the instructor who was interviewed by Zekman wrote to the Daily Herald, Wake up, Naperville! John C. Kim's style of Chung Mu Kwan is not what it appears. Don't be fooled and sucked in like our son. Scott Kiefer of USA Karate, according to an article in the Daily Herald newspaper, started a group to monitor the way local martial arts schools operate to help prevent scams like this in the future. The investigative report led to most of the Chicago-area schools closing. The damage to the Moo was mostly contained to the state of Illinois. By November 15th, the Moo began to register schools in Houston, Texas, under the new name Chung Moo Do, dropping Quan from the name. Along with that, there was a new name for Master Kim. He was now known as Chung Soo Nim and Iron Kim. The Moo denied its own history. Any past wrongdoings were blamed on instructors who were no longer there or said to be rumors started by other martial arts schools, jealous of the Moo's true martial arts training. The Moo lashed out against those who had exposed them. They made superficial changes, not because they wanted to, but because they had to. Those who trained in Moo schools after the news expose and never saw many of these things owe a debt of gratitude to Pam Zekman and to those students and instructors who risked their lives to warn others. The Moo has never admitted that Master Kim is not the champion of all Asia, or that Grandmaster Wang Po never existed. They still believe and advertise that Master Kim can jump from an 11-story building without being harmed. Zekman contacted the Minneapolis CBS affiliate WCCO about her investigation, but they declined to become involved. This decision worked in the Minnesota Moo School's favor, and they were relatively unaffected. The seriousness of the news expose was downplayed. The popularity of the Internet was still a few years off, so like most destructive cults, the Moo's system of information control prevented the Minnesota instructors from learning the true nature of the news investigation. Students and instructors in Minnesota were told that the schools in the United States had split from the schools in Asia. Student ID cards were to be collected. In return, students were issued ID cards that stated their ranks were now registered in the United States. In Minnesota, they were unaware that the Asian schools did not exist. It would take almost four years before revelations of the cult and the con would become known in that state. Russell Snaps The week Russell was accepted into a $30,000 instructor's course, two assistant instructors approached him in the changing room after seeing the scars on his arms. They asked Russell about them. After Russell left the hospital, his injury was not known to most of his lower belts. At first, 
Russell changed with help from other assistants. If they were in a group, they made a game out of it and made all the lower belts turn away from Russell so he could change. They always said that school would never hurt you, but his scars proved that wasn't the case. When Russell told them the story about the push-ups, they told him they had heard a story from assistant regional head instructor Keith about a student who did 100 push-ups and his arms swelled up and he went to the hospital instead of the school, but they never knew the student's name. I became very upset. I was being used as an example of what happens to a student who doesn't trust the school enough to come to them for help. Keith had always talked about breaking the main line of respect. Well, what is a student to do when the main line of respect is broken by a national instructor and an assistant regional head instructor? Around the same time, School E opened up in Bloomington. Murphy Gilman was the head instructor for the new school, and Russell was assigned to be the assistant instructor under Murphy. The two had been paired up before and made a good team. Occasionally, you would hear a story about someone coming into a school and challenging the instructor to a fight, so you wanted to be paired up with someone you knew had your back. Sometimes, when an information came into the school, it was not always an option to get them into the practice area for a free lesson. At times like this, the instructor in charge of the school would call for an assistant so they could demonstrate Chung Mu Kwan's self-defense movements. Normally, this would include some basic Hapkido movements, including the crossover wrist break. Next, the instructor would demonstrate self-defense against a punch. Any assistant that had been around for a while would be used for one of these demonstrations. The instructor would have the assistant throw a punch towards his face, and whatever self-defense technique he used, he would get in and the assistant felt it, literally becoming a human punching bag. After a while, assistants became very good at taking a hit. One time, Russell and Murphy were teamed up at St. Paul School B when an information came in. Russell was called up to the waiting area to be used for the demonstrations. Murphy had Russell throw a punch towards his face, and after a few choreographed hits, Murphy, kicking Russell, launched him through the beaded curtain, landing him in the office. Russell was not hurt. He could take a hit, but the information left running from the school. Russell and Murphy laughed, thinking that they had scared the shit out of the guy. They were amazed when he returned from his car with a checkbook in hand, ready to sign up for lessons. Russell passed out flyers for the new school, but his heart was no longer in it. Russell had known Murphy since they first met in junior high school, and they had always gotten along well. By this time, Murphy was a third-degree black belt. Russell had met Aiden Gonzalez when Aiden was a third-degree, and how he moved was what Russell expected of all Chung Muquan instructors. Murphy was nowhere near that level. In fact, none of the third-degrees in the school were. This was not just Russell's opinion. It was the opinion of others as well. Some referred to Aiden as a martial arts prodigy. There was always a separation between students and instructors. This created mystery regarding the instructor's skill level, and it made students feel in awe of them. As much as he liked Murphy, Russell just could not look at him with the same admiration he'd had for Aiden Gonzalez. Russell didn't feel he could talk to Murphy about both National Instructor Jared and Keith breaking the main line of respect toward Russell. Even if he did mention it, there was nothing Murphy could have done about it. 
Any questioning of a higher belt's word would have been met with hostility and demoralization. School was not designed to have a higher belt's word questioned. Russell could tell that Murphy knew something was going on with Russell. He tried to motivate, handle Russell, but the usual instructor techniques didn't work on Russell because he had known Murphy for too long. There was a school Halloween party that weekend. Russell dressed up as a guardian angel street patrol guy with bandages and a black eye. A few people did not see the humor in it. At the party, a few head instructors asked Russell how it was going for him living on his own. Russell assured them he was doing well. But the voice in his head was getting louder, as it told him something was wrong. Russell remembers feeling resentment toward many of the instructors at the party, most of whom, at one point or another, questioned his actions after his injury. I knew this was a story that was being passed down from National Instructor Jared and Keith. I had always been told that instructors were like family and were better than any friends I could have outside of school. But when I ended up in the hospital for 16 days, the only one that came to see me was Murphy. I went into work the next day, exhausted as usual. It was around 5 p.m. and I was still at work. I called into the school and said, Hello, head instructor. Be right to say this is Assistant Instructor Russell. Be right to ask if there is anything I can do for school. Be right to ask if you're self-care for anything. Be right to step into the school. In that moment, I finally heard the voice in the back of my head that had been warning me for so long that something was wrong, and I slammed down the phone and yelled, Fuck it, I quit. Russell remembers thinking that he had become like a dog, programmed to respond to the school's every command. He was happy when he received praise from them, and sad when they condemned him. As Russell left work, he started to suffer a complete psychological breakdown. His every instinct was telling him to run as far from school as possible. He got home from work, turned off all the lights, and pulled all of the shades down low. Not long after getting home, the phone started to ring. It was the school, trying to find out what happened to him. Russell was in complete paranoia mode. He wanted no contact with anyone from the Moo School. He was afraid they would talk him into going back. Later that night, while I hid in the darkness, they came looking for me. I lived on the ground floor of an apartment building. They knocked on the doors and the windows, calling out my name. I curled up in a blanket next to my bed on the floor, not wanting to be seen as they looked through the windows. The next day, I quit my full and part-time jobs for fear that the moo would come looking for me there. They came to my apartment several more times over the next six weeks as I hid in the darkness. I wanted to learn martial arts like many other kids my age. No one could have warned me that by walking into a martial arts school in a local strip mall, my life would take a devastating turn. I wanted to learn respect and determination, self-confidence and courage, and I wanted the physical conditioning. Instead, I would leave in the worst condition of my life, scarred and physically deformed. My head was full of superstition, sexist ignorance, and a belief in a human supreme being with supernatural powers. Eight years after joining the Moo, I found myself hiding in the darkness with no understanding of how I got there. This is the final episode of Deceive the Moo Years Season 1. The cast and crew at Deceive would like to thank you for listening.
Deceive the Mooyers is a production of Deja Moo, LLC. Recorded and produced by Alive and Social Podcast Network. Russell Johnson, producer and writer. Charles Hubble, host and narrator. David Bruskin, editor. Russ Meyer, co-writer and editor. Aaron Tro, sound producer. Brian Price, audio editor. Wyatt Sarber, recording engineer and editor. Woon Tae Ryu is our advisor in South Korea. Authentic is our advertising representative. Deceive the Moo Years is represented by Young Entertainment Law. 